Breaking news. Besides the NCAA selection show on Sunday, Tom Brady breaks the internet with a tweet. These past two months, I've realized my place is still on the field and not in the stands. That time will come, but it's not now. I love my teammates and I love my supportive family. They all make it possible. I'm coming back for my 23rd season in Tampa. Unfinished business. LFG. Let's fucking go. Thomas Edward Patrick Brady Jr. is back in the NFL for year 23 at age 45. His birthday is on August 3rd, so that's when he will turn 45. It was important that he did that today. He wasn't trying to sabotage selection, now selected Sunday. As tomorrow, per the NFL, clubs are permitted to contact and enter into contract negotiations with the certified agents of players who will become unrestricted free agents upon the expiration of their 2021 player contracts. So he had to do it before noon tomorrow when a laundry list of important players from last year's team could, could begin negotiations to go elsewhere. That's why this was basically twilight hour for him to make a decision in order for some of those players who might otherwise go to other teams to give them a heads up to say, hey, I'm going to come back. You can too. I'll be here. Some of the notable agents, Senator Ryan Jensen, right guard Alex Kappa. Of course, Chris, Chris Godwin is already franchise tagged. We've got Nadamakin Sue, Jordan Whitehead, Carlton Davis, the corner. Rob Gronkowski, we'll see about that. Leonard Fournette, Jason Pierre-Paul, O.J. Howard. So a whole bunch of guys. We'll see what happens. But Tom Brady is back in the NFL for next season. I've never been a huge Tom Brady fan, but I am excited for a lot of good teams in the NFL. And one more good quarterback makes that a possibility. I do feel sorry for all the fans that went to see his last farewell tour, grab his farewell tour memorabilia. Uh, his last touchdown, last touchdown, thrown touchdown NFL ball uh, did go for auction for $518,000 yesterday. That will lose some value. It's unfortunate for that auctioneer but tremendous for us viewers and fans of the NFL in general and great competition. They will have to figure out some cap space issues. The Buccaneers will, but he walks into a division that is still very much uh, his for the taking. The Atlanta Falcons are still stuck on the biggest quarterback contract in the league with Matt Ryan owed over $80 million over the next two years, just handicapping uh, the moves that can be made for that roster they have no wide receivers right now. That's going to be a problem. I, I don't see that it's feasible that both the Saints and the Panthers are relevant. Of course, they are pursuing uh, Deshaun Watson now. We'll get to that uh, in a few minutes. Uh, but very much the top dog coming into the division still. Uh, had he left, this would have been one of the weakest divisions in football, as it was rumored that they would have just stuck with possibly Kyle Trask, who was drafted out of Florida last year at quarterback, you know, not necessarily pursuing uh, someone to really step in and take his spot. So it would have been a really weak division uh, without him there. But with him stepping back, possibly bringing a lot of these unrestricted free agents to sign contracts again, Tampa Bay could be back in the playoffs, could be interesting again. I wouldn't say that they're front runners for the Super Bowl or anything, but it certainly keeps things interesting. The NFC picture, as it looks right now, out of the East, uh, maybe the Cowboys uh, are really a threat there. 
Giants, Eagles, Commanders. We'll see what happens there. Packers, obviously, a big contender. Lions rebuilding. Bears seem to signal that they're rebuilding. Vikings, we'll see what happens, but certainly not in the same position uh, as they were even before, changing coaches, changing staff. We'll see what happens with Kirk Cousins, but probably a full rebuild going on there as a whole division could be punting with Aaron Rodgers coming back and just relinquishing uh, the division for a year as everyone kind of resets and reevaluates uh, the cap in different important positions. The NFC West will still be competitive. Presumably Kyle Murray will be back in Arizona. The Seattle Seahawks might try to land a quarterback, according to various reports, or might be rebuilding. Rams and 49ers should still be involved. So the NFC East could see Tampa Bay in the mix with just a couple teams towards the end of the year for a Super Bowl run. Obviously, the AFC is just a loaded conference, uh, loaded division all over the place. Buffalo Bills, we'll see what happens in Baltimore. Bengals should be back at it. Browns are trying to make moves. We'll see what happens in the AFC South. And Broncos, Chiefs, Chargers, all in win now mode. We'll get to that in just a second as well. Tom Brady back at Tampa Bay. We'll see what happens with free agent moves coming up here. Very, very exciting. All my blessings, all my blessings. 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 I need my blessings every penny. Daily counting every single one I'm seeing plenty. Level up and watch So we have some other real NFL news that's come across. Amari Cooper has been traded to the Cleveland Browns. My first thoughts on this was, this must be fake. Wasn't he cut? And what impact does this have on Jarvis Landry, of course, already on the roster for the Cleveland Browns? The trade is for a fifth rounder this year, 2022, and a swap of six rounders. Fun little added thing uh, that seems to be popular now, just whipping a couple picks around in the late rounds, even though most of those picks... Uh, don't go to the original teams that had them to begin with or on draft night. Same thing happens in the NBA. Most of the time, the second round picks don't end up with the same teams that have them even going into the night. Nevertheless, I thought it was going to be a much bigger investment on Cleveland's end. I've since calmed down, and this is probably, I don't know, a net neutral trade. Dallas is still on the hook for $6 million. Cleveland will be paying $20 million over each of the next three years. Uh, Landry was immediately, not immediately, but pretty close. Uh, reports came out that he was uh, being offered, allowed to um, open himself up to being offered uh, in trades. Moving him will save the team just over $14 million this season. So you're paying roughly $6 million, a little less than $6 million more to quote-unquote upgrade to Cooper, but that will come over the next three years. And I'm just not sure it raises the ceiling for the Browns. You still need Baker Mayfield to pull through a quarterback and really show you uh, that besides his injury last year, that he can take a step forward. And as we know, progression is not linear. That's not necessarily coming. And losing Odell Beckham Jr., someone that could really stretch the field. As much as we uh, like to say Odell Beckham Jr. shouldn't always be barking and commanding the ball. We shouldn't hear from his dad that the ball needs to be thrown. There are clearly times that the ball needs to be thrown to Odell to really open up the offense. 
So I'm not sure that not having a field stretcher right now and having all offensive weapons that want to play close to the right line of scrimmage uh, is a great idea. So we'll see what other moves are coming from Cleveland. The Cowboys have made a lot of moves just to get under the cap. They're one of a handful of teams that were over. So we'll see the top agent to be uh, re-signed at the wide receiver possession is probably Michael Gallup. At some point, they will have to re-sign C.D. Lamb. He's got a couple years left on his rookie deal. Obviously, teams usually pay ahead of time uh, to get the new contract on the books. Uh, they, they, that was an interesting contract to re-sign, along with Zeke Elliott, a couple years back. I just, I'm not sure if this is a ceiling raiser for Cleveland. I'm not sure you can point to Cooper as being the reason that she'll win another game, even another football game over Jar Jarvis Landry. He did play 16 games in 2019 and 2020, 15 games last year. Um, he did accumulate 21 total touchdowns over the past three years, and he has put up over 3,000 yards. Last year, only 865, and he only saw about 68% of snaps on the field, so a little bit lower rate in some of those categories last year. Last year, 12.7 yards per catch was outside of the top 60 in rankings. Uh, one of the lower um, catch totals for his career at one point, it was 15.1 yards per catch in 2019. So maybe the Browns can move him around a bit. If Landry wanted out of there anyways, I guess it was a good way to kind of lock them in to that price range without having to worry about scaling up at the receiver position. And they didn't have to give up much for it. Dallas obviously had to cut salary. I guess I guess that's one way to do it. You have to move someone. But you're dumping Cooper to pay Galladay anyways in the long run. I, I don't think it'll solve any of Cleveland's problems, and Dallas isn't going to do much with the picks. So small risk, possibly high reward for uh, Cleveland, low reward, low risk for Dallas. We'll see if Mari Cooper does anything to help that offense in Cleveland. In the AFC West, the Chargers said, Denver, we see your Russell Wilson and we raise you a Khalil Mack. For only a second round pick this season, as well as a sixth rounder, I believe, a second and a sixth rounder, they grab Khalil Mack. Now he is due about $85 million over the next three seasons, but Chicago chose to eat $24 million and dead cap this year to get him off the books. He's 31 years old, only played seven games last year due to injury, played 16 games each of the previous two years in 2020 and 2019. It's not a secret anymore that the best way to win the Super Bowl is to hit on quarterback and build your team while that quarterback is still on his rookie paycheck to pay all the pieces around him. But trading a second rounder for Mac signifies that they are now putting themselves on a clock with Justin Herbert's rookie deal. They also re-signed Mike Williams, the receiver, to a three-year, $60 million deal. Last season, Williams had nine touchdowns and over 1,100 yards, so he will be uh, a welcome back contributor to this offense. But adding Khalil Mack at 31 years old to that defense signifies that they are definitely putting themselves on a clock to win now, which is very interesting considering Russell Wilson now with Denver in that division, two years left on his friendly contract, considering he's the 10th highest paid quarterback in the league. Also, 
on the clock. You can't assume that he's going to play till 40. He hasn't really signified that. He's currently 33 years old. And, of course, Patrick Mahomes already getting paid. So three teams moving all in to win right now in that division alone in the AFC. Chiefs, Chargers, Broncos. Electric division there. All going all in. Joey Bosa, German James, Khalil Mack on the defense for the L.A. Chargers. Top division, I think, heading into 2022 in the NFL. The Raiders are trying to keep up have re-signed Max Crosby to a four-year, $95 million extension. That's what we've seen so far from the Raiders. Certainly not a bad thing. Crosby was a fourth-round pick out of Eastern Michigan in 2019, did a stint in rehab in 2020, made the Pro Bowl in 2021, and will finally be making money on a real contract in 2022. That's great for Crosby. The Raiders should take a year off and uh, consider what a rebuild would look like. Much like the NFC North, transitioning back to Chicago, who is getting under the cap, making a few cuts, eating a lot of money, making a coaching change. So we're seeing a reshuffling of Chicago. The Lions continue to build. Looks like uh, Kirk Cousins just resigned uh, a deal to come back to Minnesota. But they will continue to make changes as the NFC North continues to Reshuffle now that Aaron Rodgers is back and presumably in control of that division for now. But Chicago, clearly willing to kind of take a punt on this year. They could have kept Khalil Mack and built around him for now, but willing to take the dead money and just kind of reestablish themselves on both sides of the ball, building around Justin Field on offense this upcoming season. The other piece of monster news coming out was Deshaun Watson not facing criminal charges for his sexual misconduct allegations. That means that he is back on the trade market. It doesn't mean that he won't be placed on the NFL exempt list and possibly suspended uh, for conduct that's detrimental to the league, I believe is the phrasing that they use when they couldn't miss some games. Both the Saints and the Panthers are rumored to be pursuing him. The Panthers did pursue him last season it's impossible to see him out of football but it's hard to see him as a sell to your fan base possibly to some owner groups that aren't all controlled by men anymore so i don't know what's going to happen there what that's going to look like or if it's just going to be football as usual from an outsider's perspective i don't know what that looks like from a fan's perspective what his first home game or road games will look like I feel like it taunted in the stands. I feel like it taunted at his own stadium. That could be a storyline going forward. I'm not sure. I'm not sure that it's something that should be swept under the rug. He will still be facing civil suits. There's just a lot of pieces of that case we don't know. And with him being a public, public figure and on the field, it's, I think, a very difficult situation to grapple with if he were to be a quarterback. Myself being in Michigan, if he ended up a Detroit Lion, I just think it would be difficult and to, to root and morally feel uh, that this person is ethical. And it would just be a difficult watch to root for my team and this quarterback uh, with the allegations that are pending against him. From a football perspective, 
if you went to the Saints or the Panthers, they'd have to send a haul of picks back in exchange for Deshaun Watson, whether it's still three first-rounders, two first-rounders, and a second, whatever, whatever the price would be now. And they could both use picks to build. As we know, the Saints have been in salary cap hell. Uh, the Panthers, uh, Matt Rule, this could be his Hail Mary, so to speak, to make a big roster change. So I'm not sure long-term uh, that moving all these picks would be a good idea. But they will be fighting, you know, auctioning against each other for his services. Dennis Allen, the new coach for the New Orleans Saints. And Tom Brady's coming back to the Buccaneers, walking into the best roster in that division. So should Deshaun Watson move to one of those teams, I'm not sure that he just walks in and tortures the league again. We don't know what kind of playing shape he's in, what kind of headspace he's in. We're not really sure if the locker room acknowledges what's been going on or if he'll, he'll just be welcomed in as a football player that's made mistakes and he'll hit the field running. We don't know. But presumably, this division is still the Buccaneers. And if a bunch of picks have to be moved out that could really help build around him, I'm not sure he ends up in a space that's a whole lot better than the Texans. Certainly an improvement, because the Texans were losing talent all over by the time he was out of there a year ago. But I'm not sure it's a significant upgrade or even a playoff team. But Deshaun Watson... That'll be one of the hot news topics as we get closer to the draft here uh, towards the end of April. So prior to the selection show on Sunday, we had five games finishing up their championships. Number nine, Tennessee, ninth ranked Tennessee, uh, beat Texas A&M for the SEC championship, 65 to 50. The Aggies came up short and making a run through the tournament to try and grab the auto bid. It did end up costing them in the tournament as they did not make it at all. We will go through the cuts and not cuts for the turning in just a moment, but 65 to 50. Tennessee looks very strong, looks very dangerous going into the tournament. The SEC looks very strong in general with Kentucky, Auburn. Alabama's event very inconsistent. We'll have to see with them, but Tennessee certainly making a statement. They've won 12 of their past 13 games, stretching back until the end of the regular season, with two of those wins being over Kentucky a win over Auburn, two wins over Texas A&M, two wins overall over Mississippi State, who was in the bubble, and a win over Arkansas. So all wins over the top teams in the SEC. One loss on the road at Arkansas in there by 10 points. But Tennessee looking very, very strong heading into the tournament. Iowa's Keegan Murray. Whoa, whoa, baby. Iowa's Keegan Murray. Recorded a double-double, 19 points, 11 rebounds, added three assists, two steals, and a block. And a big 75-66 to win over Purdue in the Big Ten Championship game. Uh, 20 points for Ivy. Hannon had to bounce a three-pointer off the glass into the hoop uh, from closer to half-court than the three-point line against Indiana. 
to win 80 to 77 yesterday just to get the Hawkeyes to this point. But they look quite strong heading into the tournament, knocking off Purdue, Indiana, Rutgers, uh, Michigan towards the end of the year, Michigan State, Iowa State, excuse me, Ohio State. So they are looking strong as well. The lone loss in their last 10 games was a road loss to Illinois, 74 to 72. They did, of course, put up 112 points against Northwestern in the first round of the tournament. This is a very, very dangerous squad here, the Hawkeyes. But playing so close to selection time probably hurt them, as they did check in at a five seed, which seems way low uh, with considering how they wrapped up the season. The committee may or may not have taken into account their full final run there, but they are the fifth seed in the Midwest reason, region, and they will play the 12th seeded Richmond Spiders, who would not have made it into the tournament if they did not knock off Davison in the A-10 final today. That was 64-62. to 62. Richmond prevented Davison from getting a shot, I believe. I watched so many games recently. I believe Richmond smothered Davison, prevented them from getting a shot at the end, and the Spiders pulled off the upset. And now that they've grabbed an auto bid, they're in as all the way up at a 12 seed based on strength of record. They shot 43% from the field, 31% from three. Not a great percentage, but Davison, 37% from the field, 33% from three. Not the best night for some of their top players. Lawyer had seven, Lee had five. So Davison struggled just a bit as their top playmakers when it combined two for 16 from the field. But Davison and Richmond now in the tournament. Houston beat Memphis in the AAC tournament, 71-53. to Both teams into the tournament. Houston, of course, been playing shorthanded the entire season. They did win. White Jr., 20 points on 8 of 13 shooting. Four players in double figures. Only eight players logging game time. Shortened bench, of course, there for Houston due to injuries. And Memphis making the tournament despite being really spotty for a long time there. They actually beat Houston uh, not too long ago, early in the season, 69-59 to 59 on the road. They lost to SMU twice this year in the regular season, but did beat them to make that make it into the final, 70-63, to 63, and that probably is what kept SMU out of the NCAA tournament and into the NIT, and it's probably what boosted Memphis in. That was probably a play-out game. Play-in, play-out game for those two teams. SMU out, Memphis in, regardless of the result of the championship. So Memphis loses championship, but still makes the tournament anyways. The Ivy League tournament, which was four teams. There had not previously been an Ivy League conference championship. Yale, the second seed, at 19-11, beat Princeton, who was 23-6. They won 66-64. to Another game where Princeton struggled to shoot and get a shot off at the end, and Yale pulled the upset. The Bulldogs will grapple with the Purdue Boilermakers in the first round out of the East Region. So initial thoughts on the bracket. Number one overall seed is Gonzaga, followed by Arizona, Kansas, and Baylor. So we have two Big 12 teams at the top. Breaking it down by conference and teams now. The Big Ten has nine teams in the tournament. 
they lead all conferences. The committee said, how many teams would you like in? The Big Ten said, all of them. And the committee said, okay, let's do it. So Wisconsin at 24-7 and seven was the regular season champ. They were tied with Illinois. They're making it in as a three seed. Illinois got a four at 22-9. Uh, and nine. Purdue also made it in as a three seed at 27-7. and seven. Iowa made it in as a five, which seems a little low. They're 26-9. and nine. Uh, That's, of course, uh, they give all these totals without including the run through the tournaments. But they did win the tournament. So Wisconsin a three seed, Purdue a three seed, Illinois a four, Iowa a five. Ohio State finished 19-11 and 11 on the season, had a tough go towards the end. They are a seven seed, which might be a touch high for Ohio State. But again, lots of respect for the Big Ten. Michigan State got a seven seed as well at 22-12. and 12. Rutgers and Michigan both got 11 seeds. Rutgers at 18-13. and 13. Michigan at 17 and 14, only a handful of teams that are just a few games above 500 got an at-large bid. There aren't very many. And Indiana as a 12 seed is a play-in at 20 and 13 after a great tournament run. I really can't believe after Rutgers, Michigan, and Indiana all being on the bubble that all three made it in. Uh, Michigan wasn't even one of the last four teams in, which really signals that no matter what happened in the Big Ten tournament, they were going to be in the NCAA tournament since they lost in the opening round. So lots of respect for the Big Ten. Uh, no misses here. Everyone everyone made it in. Biggie, six teams. Providence won the regular season based on win percentage because they did miss some games due to a COVID pause. They are 25-5. and five. Villanova is 26-7. and seven and actually beat Providence twice in the regular season. They swept them, and they also won the Big East Tournament. Providence is a four seed. Villanova is a two seed. I think both of those are exactly where they should be. Providence, by luck metric, which is a thing, actually measures out as one of the most fortunate teams in the NCAA. Wisconsin's also up there. Uh, I forget how many wins by five points or less. But Villanova, two seed. Earned that with a tournament run. Providence is a four. Seems to be slotted correctly. UConn, a very dangerous team. Again, they just joined back in the Big East. They are 23-9. and nine. They are a five seed. Creighton made a great run. 22-11. and 11. They pounded Providence in the tournament. Racked up a number of great wins during the season. They are a nine seed. Marquette, also a nine seed. And 19-12. and 12, And really faded down the stretch. Seton Hall, an eight seed at 21-10. and 10. So they just kind of lumped all three teams in there together. I would have at least put Creighton at a eight seed, maybe pushing a seven, uh, looking around depending on how everyone else slotted out. But Creighton maybe a little undershot there. Marquette a nine, Seton Hall an eight could have been dropped down to a nine. But I guess since they're all in the eight nine slot, it largely doesn't make much of a difference. Misses here. Xavier is going to be talked about. They were 18-13, and 8-11 in conference play, lost the opener of the Big East Tournament. Key wins were over Ohio State, Creighton twice, and Virginia Tech, who grabbed the auto bit out of the ACC. They're the only team prior to conference tournament play that had four quad one wins that didn't make the NCAA tournament field. For comparison to a team like Michigan, Xavier was one game better in the record total Xavier was 18 and 13, Michigan 17 and 14. 
five and eight in quad one play versus Michigan's five and ten, and they had one more quad win at four and three versus Michigan's three and three. Xavier also had two quad three losses, while Michigan had one. So comparable uh, altogether record, but Xavier will be a number one seed in the NIT, and Michigan comfortably made it at the NCAA tournament as an 11 seed. Actually, I take that back. Xavier will be a number two seed in the NIT bracket. I'm not sure how that happened, but the Musketeers clearly just fell off a cliff. I don't understand that reasoning at all. It doesn't make sense to me. The Big 12, six teams in the NCAA tournament, two number one seeds. Uh, Baylor and Kansas both tied for the regular season championship. Kansas played two more games and won them. They finished 28-6 and six overall. Baylor was 26-6. and six. Kansas also won the auto bid by winning the Big 12 tournament over Texas Tech, who was a three seed at 25-9. and nine. Texas, who no one has believed in the entire season, is a six seed at 21-11. and 11. TCU is a nine seed. They are 20 and 12. They're eight and 10 in conference play. They've lost eight of their past 11 games, stretching back into the regular season. But wins included Texas Tech and Texas, and they played Kansas three times in those games. They beat Kansas once. They played them tough uh, at Kansas at Cameron uh, Indoor, and then in the uh, tournament. They played them close and lost neutral site, uh, and also played Baylor close and a road loss as well. So a team that was supposed to be comfortably in coming into the Big 12 tournament, then knocked off Texas in the Big 12 tournament um, before losing. So they locked up their spot. Number nine seed. We'll see how far it takes them. Iowa State is an 11 seed. They are 20 and 12, 7 and 11 in conference play. They have non-conference wins over Xavier, Memphis, Creighton, and Iowa that have really carried them. We'll see what the Cyclones can do. Not a lot of confidence in them either. Oklahoma was 18-15 and 7-11 and in conference play. They did surprise Baylor in the Big 12 conference uh, tournament. Was uh, not able to win a second game or make a run. So they will go to the NIT. They will be a number one seed in the NIT, so riddle me that, but Oklahoma is a miss for the NCAA tournament. I doubt you'll see anyone fighting for that uh, on your big media channels. SEC, six bids, and they are very high. <laughs> a two-seed Auburn, 27-5, and five, they won the regular season. Kentucky, also two-seed, 26-7. and seven. They're looking stronger now with Ty Ty Washington back. Tennessee is a three seed at 26 and seven. They won the auto bid in the SEC tournament. They arguably could have been bumped up a spot after Auburn's poor performance. Probably didn't want three SEC two seeds up there. Arkansas is a four seed at 25 and eight. Struggling LSU, six seed at 22 and 11. Uh, Alabama is also six. They're 13. No, they are 19 and 13. Well, not the only one struggling. Sixth seed, Alabama, 19-13, probably too high. Uh, they did grab some big wins earlier in the year, uh, but the high-tempo team haven't been very consistent. Probably too high for Alabama. Probably should have been dropped down a bit. But you could argue that those losses came at the hands of some of those higher-ranked teams up there. Alabama's non-conference wins came over Gonzaga, Baylor, Miami, Houston, 
this South Dakota State team uh, that now has 30 wins and is in the NCAA tournament. Lots of wins in the non-conference skate, uh, slate for the Alabama Crimson Tide. Didn't fare so well in conference play. Two losses against Kentucky. A loss in the only meeting against Auburn, although it was close. They also grabbed a win over both Arkansas and LSU and their only meetings with those team, um, against those two teams, but they did have some awful losses uh, to Missouri, to Georgia, who only won six games on the year. So uh, we'll see. What, we'll see. You know, I say we'll see a lot. We'll see what Alabama does in the NCAA tournament. They did not play Texas A&M, who will be a number one seed for the NIT. Texas A&M finished 23-12. and 12. I consider them a miss for the tournament. I would have put them in after running through Florida, Auburn, and Arkansas in the SEC tournaments. Again, we're seeing that sometimes these tournaments aren't really weighed by the committee, although why do we bother uh, if they aren't uh, kind of looked at as being figured into the result? Uh, the Aggies do finish 4-10 in Quadrant 1, 5-0 in Quadrant 2. They did have a couple of bad losses in Quadrant 3. They weren't particularly strong during the year. They did open the SEC tournament against Florida uh, in what was essentially a play-out game. Florida finished 19-13 and 9-9 and in conference play. Just not a strong enough record there, but apparently making a run through the tournament in Texas A&M's case just wasn't strong enough either, so those two are out. Florida will be a three-seed in the NIT A. Vanderbilt will be a four seed in the NIT. Old Jerry Stackhouse and Scotty Pippen Jr., who is the star of that squad, will be in the NIT. The ACC had a rough year. Five teams make it in. Duke as a number two seed. They are 28 and six. Uh, they won the regular season title. North Carolina is an eight seed. They are 24 and nine. And those are the two important teams, and I use that term loosely. Miami is a 10 seed. They are 23 and 10. Notre Dame is in the play-in as an 11 at 22 and 10. Virginia Tech, also an 11. They grabbed the auto bid. They were 11 and 9 in conference play, and they ripped through the conference tournament, grabbing arguably their second, first, third, and fourth best wins of the entire season. They had... I think two wins all year over teams that were in the bracket prior to beating Duke, Notre Dame, and Clemson in the tournament. And Clemson obviously didn't make it, so it would be Duke, Notre Dame, and a road game at Miami as their three best wins on the season, two of those coming in the tournament. So that's what Virginia Tech is looking like as far as a quality schedule. Uh, misses Wake Forest 23 and 9, 13 and 7 in conference play. They're actually fifth in the conference. They will be a number two seed in the NIT. They do have wins over Notre Dame, North Carolina, and at Virginia Tech. I thought they would have worked their way in maybe over one of those Big Ten teams, but clearly we're just all hugs and love for the Big Ten and uh, the ACC. Very much frowned upon. Quality schedule just wasn't there. I guess I understand that. Wake Forest, not only not in the tournament, but a two-seed in the NIT. Virginia Tech also beat North Carolina in the ACC tournament. That was the other win I was missing. 
So they have a road win at Miami in the regular season and three neutral site wins over Notre Dame, North Carolina, and Duke during that tournament run that are their standout wins of the season. So there are the hokey pokies for you. All right, moving on. The Mountain West has four teams in. An interesting seeding situation, really. Colorado State is the sixth seed. They are 25-5. and five. Boise State played four more games on the season, and they split. They are 27-7, and seven. so two more wins, two more losses. They lost twice to Colorado State in the regular season. They were swept by the Rams. But they did win the regular season of the Mountain West outright and the tournament. And they are two full seed lines lower than Colorado State. The Rams check in as a six seed, Boise State Broncos an eight. So even though Boise State has two more losses, they do have two more wins, but they were swept by the Rams, but they won the conference outright and won the tournament. And they're two full seed lines lower. I would think that they could move up the seed line. But Colorado State's a six, Boise State's an eight. San Diego State made it in as an eight seed as well. They are 23 and eight. They were in doubt for a little while, and Wyoming made it in as well. 12 seed, they are playing. They are 25 and 8. Strong year for the Mountain West. UNLV, for a while, kind of on the bubble. Couldn't quite make it. And 14 for the Mountain West. The West Coast, Gonzaga, 26 and 3, overall number one seed. No surprises there. The team that beat them. St. Mary's, 25-7, and seven, a number five seed, one of the teams to beat them, of course. Seems a little high, but all seven of those losses were quad one losses for St. Mary's, and they do have a, a big win over uh, Gonzaga that they won uh, soundly. They had a lead by over 20 points at one, one time in that game. And San Francisco, a 10 seed, they're 24-9. and nine. They had a solid non-conference schedule. A couple misses here, as this was a conference throughout the year that could have had, uh, you know, even four teams possible at one point, although the bottom of the conference is not very strong. BYU at 22-10 and 10 and 9-6 and in conference play. Santa Clara at 21-11 and 10-5 and and in conference play. Santa Clara, unfortunately, was 1-5 against the top three teams that all made it into the NCAA tournament and lost to St. Mary's in the conference semis by a couple points. And the non-conference strength of schedule just wasn't there. So BYU and Santa Clara will both be in the NIT tournament. Pac-12, packed full of crap. Arizona, 1C, 31-3. They won the conference tournament and the regular season outright. UCLA is a 4-seed at 25-7. They might have been able to move up a seed line uh, had they knocked off Arizona in the Pac-12 championship. They could be a sneaky out-of-the-radar team to win the NCAA championship. USC is a seventh seed at 26-7. and seven. They beat San Diego State 58-43 to in the non-conference. Otherwise, there was nothing to see in the non-conference schedule for them other than that game. And during conference play, they beat UCLA 67-64. Otherwise, they lost two other games against UCLA, twice to Arizona, and they haven't beat any other tournament teams. So two wins over tournament teams. There's just not much to see here with USC. They open against Miami. Any seed they put them could not be low enough, quite honestly. The Trojans will really have to show some quality play that hasn't been reflected the entire season 
to make a real run here in the tournament. Possible misses. Again, this was not a strong conference this year. Colorado was 21 and 11, 12 and 8 overall. Oregon and Washington State were both 19 and 14 and 11 and 9 overall, but the strength of the conference was not there. All three of those teams will be in the NIT. Yes, they will. Colorado, Oregon, and Washington State. So, that'll be enjoyable. Finally, the Atlantic 10 got two teams in when Richmond beat Davison for the conference championship. Richmond is 23 and 12. Of course, grab the auto bid. They'll be 12 seed. Davison, 27 and 6, won the regular season. So, only a two seed difference for those two squads. Uh, Richmond, again, wouldn't have made the tournament had they not uh, grabbed the auto bid, but they will slide all the way up to a 12 seed. A couple other teams that just missed the cut. Dayton was surprisingly top of the list for first four out, and should something happen due to protocol or a pause, they will be the first team to hop into someone's spot. They are 23-10, and 14-4 in conference play. That is shocking. I don't know why they're viewed so highly. St. Bonaventure, who was ranked in the top 25 to start the season, finished 20-9 and 12-5 and overall. St. Louis maybe could have wiggled their way on up there. They're 23-11, 12-6 in conference play. Again, the Atlantic 10, one of those teams that isn't a Power 5, but can certainly put some quality teams out there uh, and get multiple bids. St. Bonaventure, Dayton, and St. Louis are all going to the uh, NIT. So those are all the teams that received multiple bids of note for the NCAA tournament. Other teams going to the NIT, uh, Toledo had a nice run in the MAC. They were the top seed. They won it. It would have been nice to see them in the NCAA tournament just to see if they could make any noise. Cleveland State, the number one seed out of the Horizon, I believe, will be in the NIT. Ionia and Rick Pitino, that's where he'll be. Belmont, uh, Missouri State. Northern Iowa, Townsend, Princeton, who lost the Ivy League Conference Championship, which is normally awarded to the regular season, in-season winner. So Princeton would normally just be going to the tournaments, but since they had a conference tournament this year, they were upset on Selection Sunday by Yale. So, bummer for those guys. Utah State will also be in. They were a solid squad out of the whatever Western Conference they were out of, as my eyes start to go across. Um, so the NIT's got some solid squads in it as well, uh, as those games are played in between March Madness games. So that'll be fun to, turn in, to tune into those as well. I understand why they did uh, most of the seeding. Uh, Fifth-seeded UConn is in the West, while fifth-seeded St. Mary's is in the East and could be flip-flopped, uh, but that set up a potential matchup between St. Mary's and Gonzaga in the Sweet 16, I believe, so I understand why they flipped those. Um, Six-seed Alabama could have been flipped from the west uh, to the south um, with Colorado State, but that would put a weird matchup on the board. So several of those, um, several Big East teams are in the 8-9 that could have been flipped around. The 10 seeds are all screwed up. That could have been done better. And a lot of the 11 seeds are east or midwest teams, so that makes it weird for western and Southern slating. So for the most part, I think the seedings, other than the 10 seeds, which could have been redone, make sense this season. 
at-large teams with the fewest quad one wins. By my tally, that would be Notre Dame, 2-8 in quad one, 2-1 in quad two, unless those have shifted tremendously during the past few conference tournament days. So Notre Dame, fewest quad one wins for an at-large team. North Carolina isn't too far behind with only three quad one wins. Iowa and Virginia Tech both picked up several more during their conference tournament runs, uh, but they were both not too far behind with three quad one wins. Although Virginia Tech is six and five in quad two, and Iowa's eight and three in quad two, whereas Carolina is only three and zero in quad two, and Notre Dame is two and one in quad two. So Iowa and Virginia Tech both picking up more wins on their runs and tremendously more quality opponents at that kind of middling level. So Notre Dame, North Carolina, kind of the weakest quality schedule from at-large bids coming into this tournament. The weakest portion of the bracket that jumped off the screen to me was kind of the bottom half of the Midwest. A six-seeded LSU and 11-seeded Iowa State have both had their struggles. Um, and Iowa State certainly has a, a losing record in the back half of the season. And in conference play, LSU, I think, is hovering above 500 now. LSU certainly more of a defensive-minded team. Iowa State struggles finding their offense. Uh, Colgate and Wisconsin. Colgate, second-best three-point shooting team in the uh, NCAA. Wisconsin, obviously, led by Johnny Davis uh, in the uh, player of the year running. So Wisconsin looks like they could come out of that section. And I'm also talking about below that, the seven-seeded USC Trojans and 10th-seeded Miami Hurricanes. Again, the ACC not highly regarded or the Pac-12. So Miami and USC, again, could make it to the uh, Sweet 16 without much effort. To do that, they'll have to go past Auburn, who in themselves struggle with guard play struggle coming up with key baskets at, at big times so and they're playing jacksonville state who didn't earn their way into the tournament except by grabbing the auto bid when the team that won that conference tournament uh, was not allowed to go but they shoot a shoot very well so auburn if there's one 15-2 matchup that i think could be pushing a team i think it'd be auburn and jacksonville state I think Auburn should advance past USC Miami, um, but the bottom half of that bracket is set up for an Auburn Wisconsin Sweet 16. Those are the two most consistent teams, but even in saying that, who knows? I think Wisconsin's kind of set up to come out of that bracket, uh, but I, I, I don't know that I trust any of those teams other than Wisconsin for the most part. Got a lot of inconsistency as a whole in that bracket outside of Wisconsin. Before I had a chance to really evaluate for myself the bracket, I did hate hear Jay Billis mention uh, that the East region with Baylor's number one seed is probably the most difficult region. And at a glance, I would have to agree. I think second seeded Kentucky and four seeded UCLA are two of the non number one seeds that are most likely to win the national championship, uh, which makes that the most difficult bracket by far. Murray State and San Francisco matching up in the bottom half of that bracket, going up against Kentucky in the second round is, 
kind of disappointing. You kind of like to see one of those teams go on a run. But if they beat Kentucky, well, now that would be interesting, wouldn't it? So I'm excited. I'll be dropping at least one, maybe two more podcasts with picks, notes, a couple other things. So thanks for checking this one out. I'll drop my bracket in the description below. So check that out as well. Join the bracket, make your picks. And uh, I'll talk to you later. Thank you. I need my blessings every penny. Daily counting every single one I'm seeing plenty. Level up and watch that beat turn into a